this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, it is training camp video season. We bring you the final scheme month episode where we look to see how the 49ers might need to grow on defense to combat an increase in spread looks. And with me this week, ready to tell us how much he'd pay for his favorite jersey number, it's David Newman. It's not high, guys. It's not a high number. Oh, you've heard the Trent Taylor story, I'm assuming, by this point. Uh, no, I don't think I heard. I mean, I know that like um, who was Jordan Matthews, right, Correct. came in and, and got it or whatever, but I haven't heard like the details as to how that went down. There's, there's not a lot of details there. I just want to revel at the giant of a man that is Trent Taylor because look at this flex. He's like, all right, I'm going to change my number. It may have been precipitated by the fact that Terrell Owens had his number retired, but we'll leave that aside. He's like, I'm, I'm going to give it, okay, I'm going to give it up to Jordan Matthews. I'm going to have Jordan Matthews pay me a large sum of money. Jordan Matthews is no lock to make the roster. Jordan Matthews could get cut. I mean. Trent Taylor could literally then get have, it back. just get his number back. That's amazing, actually. <laughs> I had not thought about that, and wow. Yeah, that is, that is some great, that is just, that's such a great flex. I mean, that's. Trent Taylor becomes the goat just That's for that. It's the mind of a fifth round pick right there, you know. Nothing nothing no, certain out there. It's the mind uh, it's the mind that is protected by a hard hat. Is really what that is. I mean, kids what you, what you have to learn from this and take away is that when you protect your dome with a helmet at all times, the, you get to think positively, get positive outcomes, positive returns. He should go invest in Wall Street is what I'm trying to say. Big facts. Absolutely. But let's get to the training camp rundown and let's start with the important bits. Did you see how Akella Witherspoon tossed that ball back to Jalen Hurd? Oh, you bet your ass he did. <laughs> I absolutely did. Uh, one of one of just the purest joys. That's the uh, that's the beer worthy moment my, of the show, right there. My training camp life, uh, right there. Man, it was great. Um, got got to fire off some you know quick trolly jokes afterwards. Yeah. Troll, troll, troll your boat. Nothing makes me happier. Yeah, it was pretty good. If you haven't seen the video, it's pretty fun. I mean, you're not going to glean anything other than Akella Witherspoon seems a little. A little spicy. Other than Jalen Hurd getting dunked on. Yeah, getting spicy. But you know what? You like to see that. It's good. And man, if, if rookie Akello with a little bit of seasoning comes back, I think that'll be a really, really positive for the 49ers. Interesting yep. question from the at PFF, um, the, the PFF Twitter, the 49ers specific Twitter. Mm-hmm. What would be an acceptable coverage grade for J- uh, Jason Verrett's comeback from his Achilles, knowing that Richard Sherman had a 68 last year? Um, my question is going to be just not just about Verrett, but also Akella Witherspoon's bounce back. What would be his place to come back? I mean, Verrett is like a grade at all, right? Uh, can he even get on the field to earn a grade? Simmer down, Akella. Uh, Keep the balls to yourself. You don't need to throw them at other corners as well. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, Jason, not not from like a, uh, like he can't do it from a talent standpoint, just to like, I mean, that's been the problem, right? The dude's played a couple hundred snaps in the last three seasons. So all the little uh, particles that, end up attracted people who are injury prone that end up causing breaks or tendon snaps. They're all encircling uh, Jimmy Ward right now. So I think Jason Brett's back. clear. Yes. Off he's the off the the pup back on the pap. Back on the pap list. That's right. The physically able to perform list, the pap list. Um but assuming I, I mean like health for for just the purposes of answering that question, I think like yeah, somewhere um you know above I mean it's it's hard because he's 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 almost never played at a level that hasn't been very high, right? Right when he's been on the field, um, I think it's 
it's definitely unrealistic to, you know, expect that he would kind of reach that 90 level. But I think, you know, something that approaches like that kind of like high 70s, 80s um, would would kind of make sense to me, I guess. I mean, um, honestly, I thought that uh, like getting the 70 would be a pretty good win for the 49ers based on how much money they invested. Sure. And and if you think of if Jason Verrett is a backup corner and he ends up being in that 70 range, it's not bad for a backup corner because then the next question is Akello. I think Akello, a, a really good bounce back score for him would be in the high 70s, low 80s. I think that's where you end up hoping your starter ends up being. I and mean, then, they, need, they need multiple guys to get an, yeah. into that range, right? Like yep. the last year, they basically had no one that was hitting, um, you know, kind of that. I mean, you, you look at you basically had Richard Sherman, who was kind of like a, a little above average last year. Definitely was not Richard Sherman, you know, that we that we knew in Seattle. And then everybody else was terrible. And so yep. getting multiple guys that can get into that above average range to where you have fewer kind of clear weak spots um, is going to be big. All right. So the other interesting thing coming out of training camp was other than all the videos that are fun to watch was actually Robert Sala's presser because he had a lot of really interesting nuggets in his presser that I thought I wanted to point out and maybe unpack a little bit. One is, of course, the position switches of note. Uh, You've got Tavares Moore, who's playing at free safety, and he's staying there, which is good to know. I think we've already talked about that, but he's, he's putting that rumor to bed. And then you've got DJ Reed, who's now playing corner instead of safety. And he's sticking at corner and not switching back and forth. To me, while I think those are both very, very positive developments, it just reinforces the idea to me of of the importance of a position coach because the position coach really is the person who gets to drive a lot of this. And apparently, it was Jeff Halfley who was really driving Tarverius Moore's uh, conversion to cornerback. And now that he's gone, the team is like, okay, you can go back to safety, which is what you did well in college and and where he hopefully is going to be primed for at least a modicum of success. So overall, I just I keep thinking to myself, man, those position coaches, they really do matter. They don't get as much pub yeah. as the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator, and that's what you gravitate to. But those position coaches are a really big deal. Absolutely. And, and I think these moves are important, right? If these players, if these young guys like have any chance of developing and becoming, you know, key players and contributors on this defense, um, you know, they need to be obviously doing something that they can do well. I think um, more is still a little bit more iffy because even getting him back to safety is a little bit different than the type of stuff that he did as a safety in college. Um, but I think it's at least a start, right? At least gets him into a more comfortable position and, and doing more similar things than being an outside cornerback, um, which it was something he didn't do hardly at all. And then I think you look at, at Reed and he was definitely a guy that was really effective. I mean, really the, the problem with him in college and the kind of the big question marks were more size, right? He is, uh, especially for what the 49ers have preferred, you know, quite a bit undersized for the position, but really just kind of generally for what the league goes for it, it corner right now is, is a bit undersized for that. But from a pr- performance standpoint, like, I mean, he played almost exclusively on the outside in college at Kansas state. Um, and was actually, when you look at kind of his career college grade for SPFF, like he has one of the highest career grades in coverage, um, for a cornerback that we've got so far in, in that data that go, goes back to 2014. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it makes sense to get guys in those spots where 
they're more comfortable and have a much better chance of, of actually producing um, because it's what they know and are good at. And in that presser, Sala said something that I thought was, is the way that you should look at these players on the outside. He said, yeah, but can they cover? That's what we really want. We want defenders that can cover. Yep. That's why you bring in someone like Jason Verrett. That's why you're okay moving more out to the outside corner spot. And that's exactly what you should be looking at. Can you cover? Then I don't care if you're 5'10 or 6'2. You know, a tall guy is only a good tall guy if he can actually cover. And there are some advantages you get with that length, sure, but you can overcome that and you can still be a quality corner. Go ahead and let him do it. He proved he can do it in college. It's, it's the best bet. If you get the job done, I don't care how you do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other, I think, interesting bit about that presser was when he talked about the prevalence of nickel and how the 49ers are going to marry their base defense with nickel. And that's a direct quote from Robert Sala. He said, we tried to marry base defense to nickel more. He continues, he says, we feel like we've been able to marry the two together so there isn't as much of a tendency. So to the players, we might look more interchangeable, but we're actually no different than what we do in nickel. So really, it's, I mean, for anyone who was holding on to the vestiges of base defense, that being the, you know, the, oh, we have to worry about base, who plays Sam, all of, <laughs> all of that goes out the window when Robert Sala's telling you right here, I mean, nickel is the way that the, that modern NFL defenses are going as the, the defense that they're going to play on the majority of their snaps. And you, can, you have it coming right out of the defensive coordinator's mouth. I mean, he's like, you know, I don't know what it, it like being generous five years too late. Um, but better late than never, I suppose. Right. To finally get there and realize that like, I, I mean, that's kind of, I think one of the most encouraging things that we've heard from Sala just kind of over the course of the off season, since they made um, a lot of the changes that they did, you know, with the positional coaches that we've talked about and, and all of that kind of stuff, all of his comments about what they're trying to do defensively. And, and, you know, no matter how small the change, it, it seems to at least be, with the idea that we have to be better against the pass, right? Everything's kind of predicated on that, whether it's stuff like this and saying that, look, nickel is, is really kind of more what our base is. And we're trying to make our base looks when we do have to get into those, you know, but like he mentioned, it, it, it's really at this point, maybe like 200, 300 snaps of your defense at most. Um, and then the amount of snaps that you're getting where you actually have multiple guys in the backfield and 21 personnel type looks, like it's just hardly anything, right? It, it's not, you shouldn't be building your defense around how you stop that stuff, which is, is what you're doing. If you're saying the core of what we do is this, is our base defense, right? Is, is this four, three under or however, whatever it is that you're doing is your, your kind of base down four defensive back type package. If that's what you're revolving everything around, you're just doing it wrong. Cause it's just such a small percentage of what you're actually asking your players to do every week. And so I think, yeah, all of, all of the things that he's saying, I mean, there's a lot of other good the, the the stuff about the defensive line and kind of the plan there, something we've been saying for a while, yeah, the right? Redu- Which the is, reduction in snaps. Yeah, just like getting a big heavy ro- you you've got all of these guys there, like get a nice rotation. You know, you don't really end up with anybody playing more than like seventy percent of the snaps. Everybody's fresh when they're out there, you know, less chance for injury, all of that stuff. Um and, and so yeah, I think everything that he's been saying at least has been positive. Um, obviously we'll see kind of what it actually looks like once we start getting on the field for real games. Well, it's in that context that we bring to you the final installment of Scheme Month, and it's going to be all about defense. And and it's going to be about a defense that we think could be leveraged by the 49ers this year to face, you know, a new head coach that they're going to see in the NFC West uh, or some of the more pass-heavy teams that they're going to see. And it's all about the tight front. That's T-I-T-E. 
uh, because you know football guess, coaches hate extra characters. Yeah, like just like startups, the, they <laughs> exactly. they hate it absolutely. But the the tight front is a specific front that's been popularized in the NFL, specifically in college, really over the last couple of years. So we'll take you a little bit about the kind of the beginnings of the defense, why that defense really became so popular, what the defense is, uh, and then some questions about what the vulnerabilities are, why you would deploy it, and what it means for the future of the 49ers and whether or not this is something that they're going to do. Now, admittedly, this is not something that Sala or any of the coaches have mentioned. It's not something that we've seen the 49ers run any degree of frequency. It's just something that's bubbling up in college football, most certainly. But even in the pro game now, and it's something that we think that the 49ers could use as a defense when they're facing against some of these pass-happy teams that they are invariably going to face. So up at the top, action and reaction. This is the story of offense and defense. Some, someone innovates somewhere, and then the other side of the football reacts. And this action and reaction starts with former 49ers head coach, good old Chip Kelly. David, <laughs> what the hell does Chip Kelly have to do with the tight front? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we like to use Chip Kelly, but it's, it's the, the prevalence of kind of that spread system, right? That um, obviously he was incredibly successful with that. Um, I mean, the Chip Kelly originated the spread, right? He's like the single the, point origin. The godfather of the yeah. spread. Yeah, it's, I think that's facts. Um, and, and sarcasm font. <laughs> um, so yeah, essentially, I, I mean, everybody kind of knows, I, I think at this point we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, a lot of these ideas from the offensive side of the ball over the years during scheme month, but essentially, yeah, you get more and more teams, um, spreading things out, getting four, three, four wide receivers out there. Um, and defense is kind of having to figure out how to catch up with this stuff, right? We've seen offense just kind of destroy these college defense and 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 a lot of them just don't have a whole lot of hope unless they just have players that are so far superior right that that's how they get their advantage i literally um, used the sentence hope is not a strategy in a work meeting this week <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really not it went over well <laughs> uh, and so yeah you've seen and that's kind of the state that we've been in you know recently is, is essentially offense has a significant advantage and there's all the things they're doing whether it was you know, what you got from Kelly that was really good was in the run game, right? All, all of the, the read action that you're getting out of the gun um, in, in kind of really pushing that element forward. And then now we've obviously seen RPOs become incredibly popular throughout college and, and hardly um, anyone doesn't run them uh, at the college level at this point. And obviously a, a good number of teams, even at the NFL level now, um, have have adopted that into their scheme at some, to like some degree. So you have offenses that that are spending essentially all of this time finding ways to put defenders in conflicts. Right? They're they're trying to make guys have to be in two places at once, and then they're just going to do you know throw it where they ain't. Essentially, you know, they're going to wherever whatever you do, we're going to make you wrong in doing that. And so we're starting to now see finally defenses react to that and start to come up with some better answers. And this is kind of something that is uh, becoming pretty popular at the college level to, to do that. This is what I found so fascinating about researching the tight front was how it, it's evolved from the kind of first most popular way of defending the spread. And that was the four two five. You look at Gary Patterson, who's become very, very famous at running his four two five at TCU. And, and that defense is still very, very successful against the big 12 defenses that that TCU has got to face. If you look at their 2017, some of their counting stats, right? They allowed three yards per carry and a 31% completion rate on passes. That's pretty good. 
2017-2018 is about when the tight front starts making its wave through college and it gets to Iowa State and Texas. Uh, and, and really, the reason it's evolving a little bit beyond the 4-2-5 is because every defense has a weakness. No defense is going to be perfect or perfectly sound. And specifically for the 4-2-5, that weakness is the B-gap bubble. We talked a little bit about uh, bubbles before in some previous Scheme Month episodes. Even this year, actually, we talked about bubbles. Yep. Um, but the bubble between the nose tackle and the defensive end on the weak side when you're in a 4-2-5, that's what offenses love to exploit. And this is why that inside zone becomes such a prevalent base run for Chip Kelly because if you're going up against the 4-2-5 and there's a, a bubble or an extra kind of big gap in that B-gap area, well, now you've got a weak side linebacker who is going to have to do one of two things, either step up and attack that inside zone or drop into coverage and do his, his kind of pass responsibilities. And just like David said, if you can put that defender in conflict, if you can make him think, or you can attack him with play action or attack him with an RPO, now all of a sudden you're making yourself right as the offense and you're making that defense wrong. And so by creating that conflict, offenses win. And so the tight front essentially tries to mitigate that conflict by changing the structure of the defense. So it's no, it's no surprise that you see a lot of this defense coming out of the Big 12, Iowa State, Texas, you know, and the evolve for the, the 4-2-5, of course, was at TCU. Now they're in the Big 12. Um, but the defense has already made it into the NFL as well. It's not just a college defense anymore. There are pro teams running versions of the tight front today. I'll give you one guess as to the team that, that does it the most. Oh, man, let me think. Um, an offensive innovator... Uh, that, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's Bill Belichick. We all know it's Bill Belichick. Of course Belichick. it is. Uh, of course it is. Um, the the thing that you should really start to look at is like, oh, what is Bill Belichick? Bill Belichick like doing? Does he think this is a good idea? Every oh, we're time, probably gonna go there. Like every time I hear smart. every time I hear that though, I think to myself, first round running back. Man, come on, he's just fucking with people at that point. He's got to like. He's got to come up with something just to keep people on their toes. You yeah, know? that's um, Sony Michelle was the world's biggest faint. He yeah. was setting up play action in the draft. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So I think, yeah, if you, you know, maybe, maybe you want to put personnel decisions aside uh, to, to some degree there. I think there's obviously a lot you can learn from them on, on that front as well. But uh, especially, you know, schematically, and you look at what they do defensively, um, and, and obviously there's a lot of crossover between what they do and what Saban does at the college level, who of course is, is the guy when it comes to defensive football, um, in, in college there. And so when you see things that they're starting to adopt in some way, right, even if it's only a small percentage, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into later on kind of like what this might look like at the NFL level. Cause obviously it's going to be a bit different than what we're seeing, you know, from, from some of these college teams who are really spending a lot of their time um, defensively in, in kind of some version of this defense. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's something that you're seeing a lot of smart coaches go to because they need to find ways to like answer the questions that these offenses are presenting. Yeah, you, when you look at the, the Patriots, they ran 15% of their defensive snaps in some version of the tight front, and that was charting from Mark Schofield on Pat's pulpit. Uh, and, of course, they deployed the defense against the Chiefs because what team resembles most college spreads right now? Crazy. The Chefs. Uh, and soon, perhaps, maybe the Arizona Cardinals. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So, David, what is the tight front other than tight, 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 tight? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, uh, if... 
Yeah, that's that's a skit. Dickhead jeans it. and poverty shoes. I can't <laughs> I can't get over it. Um, I think that's an old Nick Swardson uh, skit, and I mean I, it looked it was old. A uh, buddy of mine showed it to me a while ago, and I've never gotten the phrase "dickhead jeans and poverty shoes" out of my head. And so I, I think how to I think the the skit is called "How to Be Tight." And so if it's if yeah. you haven't seen it, Google it. Take a moment, come back, uh, and then David hit us with what the actual front is and how it begins to change everything along the defensive line. So, right. So that's kind of the starting point with this because there's a lot of stuff you can do on, on the back end, but kind of the, the basis for this idea is what you're, what you're doing up front. So it's a three-man front, essentially. So three-down linemen. Everything Eric Mangini taught you to love. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what you typically get, and there's like slight variations uh, of it, but kind of the standard tight front that you're looking at is a zero nose, so a nose right directly over the center, and then you've got two defensive ends that are shading the inside shoulder of the tackle, and four-eye techniques is what we usually call that. So um, it's this 404 uh, front that you're getting there, which is very similar to um, you know the kind of three-down fronts that you'll see from kind of more old-school 3-4 teams, right? And you go way back and, and kind of talking about uh, the three, four and kind of the, the Oki front and, and what you get there. It's right. It's the stuff that Buckner and Armstead did at Oregon a little bit. Now they were a little bit further outside, usually more like five technique guys on that outside shoulder, um, or maybe head up on the tackle. So this is, is a little bit different. And, and obviously the, the approach is different as well in terms of how they want to kind of, uh, fit that up against the run and, and kind of what the actual techniques and assignments are within that. But from just a base alignment, that's kind of what you're looking for. It's that three-down line, a head-up nose on the center, and then two defensive ends that are in that B-gap kind of shading the inside shoulder of the tackle. And so that's kind of where everything starts um, is is with that front um, three guys that, that are there. And it could be a 404. It could be a 405. Um, I just looked it up, 404 Atlanta area code, incidentally. I feel like there's uh, an Atlanta okay. pun in our future. But you, I think the key here, and David, you said it there at the end, is you've got the 4I occupying the B gap. Because this is really the beginning of the defense correcting for what the deficiencies were in the 4-2-5 and really trying to stem the tide of the overabundance of inside zones, which is the beginning of a lot of the offensive systems that are really, really uh, that kind of air raid system where you're looking at options and RPOs. If you can get a defender in that B gap, now you've got someone in the gap that the offense is beginning to attack. Um, And with those three players, ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to kind of steal a gap back and just compress everything in the middle and make that running back move horizontally and spill everything out to the outside. Um, Unlike other defenses where you're going to try to fill things, this is really a defense that's predicated on making a giant mess of a pile in the middle and doing it preferably with just three guys and then forcing everything outside where you've got support. Right. So if you go back to kind of, okay, what offenses want to do with this and, and the guys that they typically attack, and it's, again, that B gap, like as far as a second level player, so usually like a linebacker um, that is responsible for the B gap, and that's the guy that they kind of attack, right? With, with the RPO game, um, you know, the end on that side as well can also be somebody that they look to exploit, you know, when you talk about some of the read stuff in, in the run game specifically. Um, and so what you're trying to do is really two things. One, you want to be able to stop that inside run game with as few players as possible. So that's why you get the front that has those guys kind of packed in between the tackles. And you really want, 
you know, those three, and then maybe kind of your Mike backer behind him, you want that small group of four, maybe five players to be able to handle all of that stuff that comes between the tackles. And so that that way, all of that gets clogged up. And like you mentioned, if they're going to find space, they're going to do it to the outside. They're going to have to either cut that way back or they're going to have to bounce it wide. Uh, And either way, you get them kind of moving laterally. And then the second part of it is you're now, if you can do that, if you can handle the run game, the inside run game with just those guys, well, now I can remove the conflict from my guys that are out in that overhang position. So the overhang position is kind of that area between the end of the, the, the offensive line, so kind of the tackle to that side, and then the first receiver that he gets to, right? Um, or if it's trips, it, it may be kind of somewhere in between. But, but kind of the, where the receivers are spread and where the end of the offensive line is, that kind of space there is, is your overhang defender, is where he lives. And so now he can kind of just stay out there. He can stay wide at first and be able to get into the throwing lanes that you see from like the RPOs, right? So if you think most RPOs, just at a, a basic level, it's, the screen game or it's the slant or, you know, kind of those quick game routes that you get right there. And now you have a player that's in position to be able to get to that stuff and he's no longer in conflict, right? He doesn't have to worry about getting inside right away to the run. He doesn't have to fill that B gap. He can basically sit and wait, make you hand the ball off by taking away that throw option and then kind of come and rally late to the run. Once you get that running back moving laterally. This is such an important concept of this defense that it sounds like such a simple thing, but I think it really is part of what makes this defense so successful. And that is that you eliminate conflict by making defenders primarily pass first and then rally to the run. The problem with conflict is that it's because you've got two responsibilities. And when you're that B gap defender, when you're that, that linebacker and you're like, all right, I know that I have to read my keys and look at that guard or look at the offensive line blocking scheme and get it to the run oh shit, it's a play action pass. Now I got to sink back and get into my zone and go to my pass responsibilities. That's where offenses are eating. We see all of the analytics that tells us that you can basically, there's no end to the play action that you can run. And you are successful because you are able to deceive the defense into thinking one thing is coming when there's really the other. That deception is predicated on conflict. It's predicated on the idea that I have to be responsible for two different things and I'm not sure which one of those two things is real until it actually happens. Now with this defense, you eliminate that conflict and you say, no, you are a pass first defender. Your primary responsibility is pass and we're going to give you a little bit of time to come up in run support if that happens because that running back is going to get clogged in the middle, spill to the outside and by that time, you overhang defender, you kind of area outside in that passing lane can now rally to the football and hopefully stop them for a minimal gain. And that's why it's important too that, you know, kind of the other piece of that, of course, we talk about all the time defensively, the scheme is only as good as the players, right? You need, you need players that can do this stuff. And, and that's why what you're seeing at college, the college level is you're getting all of these great athletes in that space, right? So there may be a, they may be a little bit lighter, um, not, you know, typical linebacker size, maybe, more safety size, you know, depending on kind of the defense, but it's, it's guys that can, you can fly say around. the name Derwin James on this podcast. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, hell yeah. If you can get somebody like that, obviously you're, you're going to be in good shape, but it, that that's kind of what you're looking for, right? You want guys that can kind of do multiple things, but most importantly, they need to be able to kind of fly around that rally to the ball, you know, 
only works if you can close that space and, and kind of go and make tackles still, right? Obviously, you have an advantage if you get the running backs moving laterally more so than being able to kind of, you know, get going downhill and, and be in a, a, a more advantageous position um, as a runner. So you kind of negate that a little bit, which gives you an advantage, but you still need to get up there and make tackles, right? So that's definitely part. But yeah, I think uh, that's something that not necessarily... Uh, I feel like everybody's super keyed on it is, is, is kind of like this idea that not everybody is, is playing the same thing from the snap, right? Like depending on your responsibility, depending on the call that you've got and the coverage historically, right? You're, you're either a pass first player or run first player. And most of your guys around the box are run first guys, because that's always the way that defenses have been built. And that's kind of what defensive coordinators preach, right? The first thing that you hear everybody say, we got to stop the run, Um, and now teams are kind of finally figuring out that like, okay, maybe that's not the most important thing by, by doing that, we're getting killed in the passing game. We're opening up the middle of the field more. We're opening up that intermediate area and, and just kind of getting picked apart by these quarterbacks with these easy throws. And so we have to find ways to remove conflict from those defenders, allow them to just play pass first. And that's going to be kind of the thing that I think even if it's not exactly in this form, you know, at the NFL level, this is the thing that they're slowly going to have to figure out how they want to do is how do we remove conflict from our second level players? Now, no defense again is perfectly sound. No defense is perfect, but this does change the structure a bit and it does impact what coverages you can play behind it. Because now that your C gap is basically this overhang defender, that's kind of not on the line of scrimmage, but um, is basically playing pass first you're basically playing a lot of zone coverages on the back end. So David, what kind of coverages do you see most often from the Iowa States or the Texases of the world on the back end that complement this defensive scheme? So I think you definitely have some popular ones, um, you know, as far as uh, in in, the college level in general, um, nearly every team, it seems like bases or at least has a significant quarters package. Um, And so you still see a lot of uh, all of the quarter stuff and all of the adjustments that go along with quarters, you're still going to see a lot of that. I mean, if I, I ran a defense, I think I'd call this defense laundry because of all the quarters. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Wow. I don't even know how we continue Just shut it down after that one. Um, <laughs> look, I get this joy once a week. Okay. I've got, I've saved it all up. I think about these on my Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then, you know, I just get a couple of minutes. That's oh, it. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, yeah, so so I think um, the nice thing is that you can do. I mean, so there's there's some great videos, and, and obviously we're not going to get too detailed into this from like uh, a, a coaching perspective. Um, if you are interested in kind of uh, a far more detailed look at it, there's a lot of great resources out there. Um, Cody Alexander from MatchQuarters.com has a ton of good stuff on it. Uh, Chris Vasser, Coach Vass on Twitter, has a podcast, a couple podcasts that that go over this, so you can find some really great information that kind of get. Detailed in this, one of the things that Cody talks about is, you know, you can get to anything you want to from a coverage standpoint. You can get to your two high stuff. You know, you can you can rotate and get to single high stuff as well. Um, Fresno State is actually probably the team most prominently. So a lot of teams still run predominantly two high coverages um, when they're when they're doing this. Fresno State is a team that has gone with a more one high approach on it. So you can get to kind of whatever you want to, right? Because the idea is now. I have fewer players in the box. I mean, you look at uh, Iowa State sometimes, and, and they have legit plays where there are four guys in the box, and that's it. They have their tight front. They have the Mike backer right behind him, and everybody else is back or wide, right? And, and so um, it is 
it, and it can be like primarily a drop eight type coverage. So you you a lot of times are getting an extra guy there that can help on on maybe some problem spots in your coverages uh, and do things like that. Um, but it also gives you the ability to, you know, kind of bring pressure from anywhere, right? And so what a lot of teams do is give more of this three safety look where they get, okay, so if you imagine what would just normally be a two high safety look, right? Two guys, roughly similar depth, kind of, you know, um, on opposite ends of the field. If you imagine a guy right between them, somewhere between their depth and where the linebackers are at. So you have this middle safety and he can kind of get to, any of those middle zones. And so if you want to bring pressure from different areas, you can use that guy to kind of fill in and, and still, so you can kind of simulate pressure up front. You can give them different blitz looks and run your stunts and, and and do all that stuff to try to generate pressure that way. And then you're still getting seven guys back in coverage to be able to, uh, you know, so you're not stuck in like a fire zone situation. Fire zone is the most common zone blitz that you see in the NFL, still probably the most common you see in, in college as well. And that's, I'm bringing five, I've got three deep, I've got three under. And, and so uh, it's nice, you know, and it's it's that popular for a reason, but you're still kind of exposing, uh, you know, some significant chunks of the field in coverage. And so the ability to kind of simulate pressure by bringing a fourth guy from different places and still having your seven in coverage is is potentially a really big advantage. And ultimately, I think when you put all this together, you begin to construct a defense that is well-suited to go against the things that we know are becoming very, very efficient in football. One of the things that Kyle Shanahan does incredibly well is he runs from passing formations and passes from run formations. And when you have a defense that's structured like this, you're now uniquely equipped to basically throw a wrench in a lot of things. This is a defense that can perform very, very well against the run. You had the Chargers who ran a lot of the tight front against the Ravens in the wildcard playoff game. But of course, it is a pass-first defense. It's meant to combat the spread. And you know that eventually an offense is going to want to pass the ball a ton. And so this is why I think the defense is so interesting is because when you're thinking about the things that offenses like to do now, the prevalence of the inside zone, the RPOs, the option runs, the types of things that you're seeing now, modern offenses do well, where they're feasting on defenses. This, de- this defense is structured to help mitigate those risks in a way that's proven very, very successful in college and even in the NFL in the, in the times that we've seen it. Right. You can really strengthen the middle. I mean, we talk about this with Shanahan all the time, right? Um, him and, and basically every other good offensive coach at this point, um, what they're really doing, and there's a, there's a bunch of ways that they go about it, whether it's um, you know play action, whether it's the jet motion stuff or any variant of motion that you're trying to pull it's really all stuff that puts those second level defenders, right? The guys at linebacker level, um, it, it, it messes with their keys essentially. So they have to react to something. It pulls them away from their pass zones and it really opens up a large space in the middle of the field. And that's where all of these teams are, are basically, you, you look at kind of the league wide trends from a target standpoint, and we've gone more and more from away from the sidelines into the middle of the field um, for our downfield pass game. And then obviously we're adding in a bunch of the, the kind of screen game and the jet sweep stuff and, and all of that that's kind of around the line of scrimmage, behind the line of scrimmage that are these safe throws um, that are effectively extensions of your run game, right? And so 
you that's kind of what offenses are doing. They're finding ways to attack that middle of the field. And so here, again, by removing that conflict, so because the reason play, you know, even if it's something as basic as play action that's been around, the reason that works isn't because, you know, no matter what former NFL players want to tell you, it doesn't matter what back is back there. Like the thing that, that, that they key on is the offensive line, right? They're getting a run key. If I'm a linebacker and I see an offensive lineman or whatever my key is, selling run action i have to react to that run action right that's why coaches will often say it's not play action unless you pull a guard right because that that pulling of the guard indicates oh crap it's a run big run sign and so yeah then that's why i I think the outside zone all the the stuff that shanahan and mcveigh do that's the boot action off of the outside zone outside zone is also probably i mean outside zone to me is probably the best play action game it's the the best thing the easiest thing to sell and so if you see that key, you have to react to it, and that pulls you up, even if it's just for a step or two, right? I mean, there's a lot of smart linebackers out there. It doesn't take them long to recognize that it's passed, but just that kind of split second and pulling them up and, and not allowing them to get that extra depth is all they need to be able to attack the middle of the field. And so, again, when you remove that conflict from from a lot of those guys, you're not going to do it for everyone necessarily, but um, definitely for, for several of them, you can strengthen up that middle of the field and, and have guys that are in position to take away these routes that they'd love to go to. Now, no defense is perfect, right? Uh, no defense is perfect. No defense is perfect. No defense is perfect. I'm putting different emphasis on syllables and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but let's get to the vulnerabilities of the type front. And before we do that, let's take just a quick moment to hear from our sponsors. All right, so number one vulnerability, would you say it is the weak side run or the weaker side run? <laughs> uh, I think it might be the weak side run. Yeah. Yeah, um, which, again, as vulnerabilities go, not a bad one to have. Um, well, this is something interesting that I that you now, I think the, the PFF Moo heat maps that you, sh- you sent me the article about yeah. those, I thought was super interesting because it, it talks about how run plays are really just like just runs in a specific area or they're plays that try to gain yards in a specific area of the field. And oh, that was a, oh, a no, that tweet was, from Seth, Seth Lena right. on, on Twitter. Yeah. I got um, my, I got my R heat maps mixed up. I just <laughs> see blue and red and blotches on the screen and all of a sudden they're all the same person. But, uh, but no, but I thought that was such an interesting tweet because it really, you know, which and, to, to clarify, I don't think we got the tweet out. It basically was about the idea of balance, right? And, and balance not being a run pass split and more about the ability being the ability to attack all areas of the field. Right. And, and a run play being the play that attacks the short middle area of the field. And, and how that is is a really interesting concept because now when you think of that and you just remove the fact that it's a run plane, like, okay, would I rather attack the short middle area of the field, deep middle, deep sides, kind of outside? Now it becomes just a, like, where do I want to attack kind of a thing? Yeah. Um, and so if all of a sudden you have a defense that is built to clog the middle because that's where you're trying to prevent that bubble from being exploited, it makes perfect sense that the weakness of that defense is then going to be runs to the outside and specifically to the weak side. Yeah, and so I think what you see a lot of college teams do against uh, the teams that can run this front is you see um, a lot of counter stuff and then also a lot of split zone. And it's basically plays that can attack the the weak side of that front because they still have, you know, the support is stronger on the strong side of the defense, right? Kind of where they're, they're setting that side. So kind of depending on uh, the formation that you're getting from the offense, right? 
it, it can be kind of a man short situation on the weak side in the run game. Yeah, what is it about the split zone or the counter that makes the tight front uniquely susceptible to this? Because the split zone is something that Kyle Shanahan loves to run a lot. I mean, when you look at the the H-back or the tight end run in sift motion, right, where they're kind of coming across the formation and blocking that backside, it's usually a split zone action. So what is it about those weak side runs that are uh, uniquely kind of that uniquely attack this defense. So part of it is how the defense, uh, you know, a, a lot of defenses align in this situation. So the beyond kind of the three guys that you've got up front, the way that they align the second level players and kind of aligning um, certain players with the strength, like part of it is there. And then also with both those runs, what you're doing is taking players that are uh, initially aligned on the strong side and you're moving them to the weak side. And so you're gaining additional blockers over there and and because of that you can end up where you just don't have enough guys necessarily to kind of fill all of the new gaps that they're creating on the weak side and you end up a man short yeah and and so a lot of times you can end up kind of a man down there or you may end up in a position where you know you need to have a a cornerback kind of fill in one of those and and you know you end up in a situation that's not really ideal as a as a defense you know that you don't want to be in um from a run game standpoint so that's kind of the the main thing. But again, um, the coverage is really strong because you're usually looking at, again, an eight-man coverage setup. And so it's it's really strong there. You've got an extra guy that you can kind of play with to do different things, whether that's, um, you know, kind of just sit in that middle of the field area as kind of a robber, like rap well, that, player. That third safety is, I think, the part that was really was really interesting for me to see how that that third safety was the the fixer or the replacer, where you could do interesting things with pressure packages or yeah. that be, that player becomes, you know, a robber or that player replaces another safety. Um, I mean, it, it becomes really interesting what you can do with that player. And, and so ultimately... And we've talked about this a lot already, I feel like. But if you're going to give up something, if something's going to be your weakness, why not be weak to the thing that's going to gain maybe four or five yards as opposed to the thing that's going to gain eight or nine? And then the kind of other thing that I would point to that is is less of a, a vulnerability, I think, and then in more of just – I think this is kind of the big thing that's going to make this problematic for some defensive coaches at the NFL level to be – kind of willing to to adopt this style of defense is you're you're really limiting the number of opportunities that you have for an edge rusher right so there's not really a true edge rusher in this defense um you know compare at least what you're used to seeing at the nfl level right where you have a guy that's you know regardless whether he's in a two point three point stance somebody that's aligned on the edge of the offensive line every snap and is is primarily uh, going to be rushing the passer on you know ninety nine percent of those snaps that are that are pass plays, and so you, because you don't really have that guy up front, obviously you know a lot of you know the forty ers just to use an example, just spent a lot of money and resources getting guys that do that thing right, and so you kind of end up in a spot. Um, where you don't have a great place for them. I mean, there are definitely ways you can get to, even with keeping this kind of tight front on the inside, get to stuff that looks more like a four-man front um, and, and kind of still be able to have that edge rusher there. Um, I think you what you start to see is more guys like in the Josh Allen mold. Josh Allen from, from Kentucky, right, this year was uh, at Kentucky. They did a, a lot of stuff that was similar to this. And that's why you saw his role was so varied, right? It was so much different than somebody like Nick Bosa. Um, he was, you know, playing in coverage a lot. He was playing as that overhang defender a good amount. 
And then when they would get into third down, obvious passing situations or just whatever situations that they wanted to kind of uh, get a little bit more in the pass rush, they drop him down on the end of the line and and let him get after it, right? And so you see guys that are going to need maybe more of that type of versatility uh, is the type of player you're looking at here as opposed to that kind of traditional edge rusher, a little bit bigger guy, and that's just kind of all he's going to do. Yeah, you even think of someone like Joey Bosa, and now all of a sudden in a tight front, you're asking Joey Bosa of the Chargers, not not Nick, I'm not screwing up his name. Um, he, now he's playing a 4-I, right? And now it's like, okay, so now you're playing 4-I. In order to get outside the edge and get that bend that he's so good at, now you've got to loop around the tackle and get into a place that's probably going to take you an extra second or so to get to the quarterback, even if you can win that rep. And that extra second in NFL terms is an eternity. You yeah. give Patrick Mahomes an extra second. You give you know Tom Brady an extra second. You give Philip Rivers an extra second. They all of a sudden become amazing players because they're really good at throwing the ball from clean pockets in rhythm as opposed to the disruption that you get when you have an edge player. And I think that is going to be one of the things that dissuades a lot of defensive coordinators from doing it because there's probably a lot of resources in that position. Yeah, And no. if there's a lot of resources in that position, then you're not going to fashion your defense around it and this is why I think Bill Belichick, you know, he's he's playing 40 chess at this point because what does he what does he not pay? He edge pay, yeah, he doesn't yeah. pay edge rushers. He doesn't play. He doesn't pay Trey Flowers. He doesn't pay these players. He pays Stephon Gilmore. And so why not then start to weave in a defense that keys in more on the success of the secondary and yep. not so much the defensive front. And you even notice that like a lot of, I mean, not necessarily every guy, but a lot of the edge rushers that they have, you know, drafted or whatever in New England that have been productive players for them, even those guys are guys that are more versatile, right? That they, they move them around a bit more. They do, they are willing to drop them in coverage a lot of the time. And, and so they do kind of play a more hybrid role than just your traditional edge rusher. So uh, yeah, certainly at the NFL level, just whether it's from, um, just kind of more of a mindset and, and philosophical standpoint. You know, I think you look at the 49ers, right? The idea that they're going to right now build from the secondary down and, and kind of focus on the back end first and not focus on the defensive line, which is what they've done. Like that's a significant change for them. So they're not really a team that's kind of set up to do this on a large portion of snaps right now. But uh, I, I think that, yeah, if you start to see one of the things that, that we kind of continue to see, right, is if colleges are starting to do it more and more, right, if we start seeing this type of defense more and more at the college level, well, now there's going to be fewer guys that are coming into the draft that are true edge rushers, right, that that are guys like Bosa that, that are playing down at the end and, and rushing the passer every single snap, like you get fewer and fewer of those guys. And finally, what we're seeing offensively, mostly in the NFL, is um, a willingness to adapt to what quarterbacks have done in college, right? We're finally getting the way, you know, instead of basically being like, we've got our NFL style offense and we don't care like how long it takes for you to learn this. This is the way that we do it here. You're seeing more and more good coaches be like, all right, well, what did they do at college and that they were successful with? Let's bring some of that into what we do and find ways to kind of make it work. And so I think you might end up getting to a point where there's just kind of a lack of guys coming into the draft that are these traditional edge rusher types. And so that's going to be, I think, the only thing that would really force these guys into, okay, we got to think of a way to do it because the athletes that we're now getting in the draft aren't the same type of guys that we were getting before. So I think you're absolutely right. The Niners would probably need to make a pretty big philosophical change in order to start building from the back to the front. 
we, you know, you postulated that John Lynch is building defense in his image, starting with the front and then moving back because that's what he knows and that's what he's experienced. He yep. absolutely confirmed that on Matt Mayoko's podcast. He said that very thing. He said that's how he, you know, his own experiences led him to believe that that's the way to build the defense. That's how they're doing it in San Francisco. Yep. But that doesn't mean that the Niners are not going to be presented with these problems very, very quickly. You mentioned the prevalence of this scheme in college and how it's permeating it now in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes, of course, is running a fantastic offense with Andy Reid. But the 49ers are now, happening, are now going to have to face Cliff Kingsbury twice a year. And the very first report out of the training camp of the Arizona Cardinals was that he's running 10 personnel. And of course, 10 personnel, one back, four wide receivers. That's an air raid look. That is a spread look. You are now going to have to face this team twice a week. And if you're not equipped to do that, if you don't know how, to, if you don't have an answer for this scheme, even for one game, you could find yourself in real trouble when you're trying to throw a defensive lineman at you. And he's like, let's find out how good your fourth corner is. Right. I mean, this is, is we've seen plenty of examples, like in even somewhat recent NFL history of when, you know, teams just clearly do not have an answer for a specific uh, like type of offense, right? I think, I mean, one that 49ers fans will be very familiar with are the Green Bay Packers and their just complete inability to stop any sort of option run game plays, right? And, and it was just, it was embarrassing. Um, and the Dom Capers pirouette, I'll never forget it. They, they had no answers for it. And so I think that's um, kind of where we're at, you know, if you want to kind of tailor this, because again, this isn't, to be meant to be like a purely this is where we think the 49ers are going type of thing this is kind of more just a a a 30,000 foot view kind of things that we think might be coming more prominent in football type of thing but this for the 49ers starting this season they're going to start to have to answer some of these problems right they're going to have to have answers for these or they're going to be in a bad spot so if even if this isn't the answer for them they're going to need to figure out ways to pull things from this to mimic certain parts of this, uh, I, the idea that this defense has, and and implement it into what they do. Even I think you're right. I think even if this isn't the answer, they're going to need an answer. And and to me, I think this could be an answer for them because at least the way their roster is currently constructed, they have really unique pieces that could build a tight front. Um, that's, I'm never going to get over the way that that sounds, by the way, tight front. Um, but I mean, okay. You look at your defensive ends that you need, you need two, four eye players. You've got DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead. I mean, those are your two None four better. eyes right there. Like they, and they did a lot of this in college. I'm sure it would take a little bit of training wheels in order to get, get them back there, but that you couldn't ask for two better tight front defensive ends than Buckner and Armstead. And then you've got your nose tackle and you've got DJ Jones who can play that as well. You've got Fred Warner who played the overhang defender in college. And so now you've got a, you know, kind of a hybrid-ish linebacker. Tavarius uh, Moore suddenly um, becomes a guy that's much more comfortable with what you're doing. And now all your safeties become, you know, kind of a big deal. Now you don't, if you're going to play a three-safety look, you don't have to worry about Adrian Colbert or Jimmy Ward or Jaquaski Tart. Now you play all of them, right? And, And so you have the pieces there if you're willing to take the extra step. And, and it's, it's not one I'd, I think that they'll be willing to take at least this year, but man, if they did, it would be really, really cool. I think it, I mean, it, at minimum, right. It's something again, they're, they're never going to want to do this, um, on a large percentage of their snaps. I no, think, it's, right? it's going to be a sub package. Um, and, and I think if nickel is their new base, 
I think this should be their new sub. Right. Like th- that's the thing is this can definitely be something that they go to at times as like a, a small package um, that they use, whether even if it's just against Arizona to start. Right. And, and something like that. Um, but yeah, they, they do have some pieces there that could certainly make that work. And some of the guys that we've really liked that they've drafted in the secondary that haven't been able to kind of find a, a, a good home, right. in what they've been doing, um, I think could absolutely help them with that. And so, yeah, again, they're, they're going to need to figure out at least something similar to this and, and figure out ways to, to kind of answer these problems. Yeah. Because even if Cliff Kingsbury doesn't go full Oklahoma, which I think he will. He's basically said that Dude, he's going to. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I can't imagine a world in which they're not going 10 personnel, like a large portion of their snaps. Well, apparently he said that what they're running is basically what Kyler ran at Oklahoma. And that's kind of the funny thing that like, so you, everything you hear out of Arizona right now is that Kyler is basically, um, he, he knows the offense the best, right. Of anybody, but cliff essentially yeah. like, cause it's, it's his offense essentially yeah. like it. They, he's, he's pulling a lot of what they did at Oklahoma. Um, which by the way, I think there's, there's, there are a couple of things we should talk about offensively at the end of this, um, is, is things that I think that we could see more of, but, um, yeah, it, it's just funny to hear like a rookie quarterback being in that position of like, yeah, he's the one that's teaching everybody the offense. Like he's the one that knows it the best. And it kind of makes you like wonder, I mean, obviously there's always going to be like a speed of the game element that needs to be adjusted to, right? The the athletes that you've got at the NFL level are just far superior. Yeah, to the your defenses. windows are smaller. People are faster. So all of that is going to require an adjustment, but it just kind of makes you think like if you can take a rookie quarterback and have him be that comfortable early on, like, why in the hell were you trying to do it another way before, right? I don't know. I, I think personally, I think it's a control thing. I think, you know. Oh, totally. It, it is. It, yeah. And that's only it. They want to be in, coaches want to be in control. And, and they yeah. don't want to cede control to their, their rookie. But even if Cliff Kingsbury doesn't go full Oklahoma, and I think he will. But if he doesn't, RPOs are still a thing. I mean, the, you remember after the Eagles Super Bowl, right? That was still like, oh, my God, RPO, RPO, RPO. That's all you ever heard about. And now RPOs are, you know, much more prevalent across the league. This is a defense that can help you with an RPO-heavy team. Um, And and so I think that it would be valuable to develop this as a sub-package because even if RPOs aren't, you know, a thing forever, and even if Kyler Murray and and Cliff Kingsbury flame out, Patrick Mahomes is still the future. And if you're an NFC team and you're trying to go up against an AFC juggernaut in Patrick Mahomes, you're going to need something to throw at a quarterback like that in order to succeed in hopefully a very, very big game. Right. So just from an RPO standpoint, like just a quick run through their schedule. Um, there's at least, I would say, 11, maybe 12 of their games where the offense that they're facing is going to use RPOs to at least some degree, right? They, they are a team that has used them more than like, let's say the 49ers have, right? Which has been basically like a non-existent part of their offense. Um so, so yeah, like basically three quarters of their games, this is it to some degree, something that they're going to have to, to figure out an answer for. And I'm not sure if Baltimore was on that list, but Baltimore was a team that the Chargers, of yep. course, had some success with running the tight front against in that wild card game. Um, you know, you've got, a, and really you've got the LA Rams who I think are a pass first team or respect. I mean, even indivi- if you look at, um, you know, one of the old football guy things is like you build, uh, your team to win your division. 
everybody in the division. Everybody in the NFC yeah. West does it. Uh, Seattle, obviously Arizona now, um, and then the Rams, like all are going to do this type of stuff. Uh, and with you know Seattle and Arizona, you're going to be really looking uh, also at like heavily with option run game stuff. You know, Seattle keeps it a little bit more simple in that they uh, typically just kind of stick to basic zone read stuff, but they do it a lot, right? They they give Russell Wilson that ability a lot, and so uh, yeah, they, these are these are all things that they're going to see a large portion of the time on their schedule. Yeah, well, while we don't think the Niners are going to actually employ a lot of this next year, it's definitely an interesting bit. It was a lot of fun looking into it. And if you want to read quite a bit more, I know David already mentioned some resources, but uh, watch Texas uh, this next year. because Yeah, Texas. Th- Big 12 is everywhere. Big 12, you've got Texas and Iowa State are kind of the more prominent yeah. ones. Todd Orlando, defensive coordinator at Texas, he does this really well. They use more of a of like a dime backfield, like a three-safety look when when you're looking at them and looking at how... Uh, they play. And honestly, I mean, this this year, Texas is going to win the national championship. So you just get on that bandwagon early. Come join me, folks. Join <laughs> um, you've me. got SEC football uh, that's going to get it too. LSU is running a good amount. Georgia runs it a decent amount. Um, Alabama has a a somewhat similar version of it called like the Mint. Yeah, I feel um, like they're still a four two five at their core. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely, you know, Saban does this thing, but they have a front called a mint front, which is a similar thing. And as, as far as like your, you have a three down, um, look there and, and kind of the same idea, head up nose, two guys in the B gaps, usually in like four eyes or whatever. Um, but they play it in a way that they pretty much always bring a fourth rusher. They just bring them from somewhere different and then they get to kind of their normal coverage stuff out of that. Um, as opposed to, the teams that run this tight front look are are predominantly when they're in this drop eight guys. Like the, the fourth rusher is more the thing that they do sometimes, not the thing that they do all the time. Yeah. So that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. You can always catch our old Ski Month episodes. We did two this year, but we've done several over the course of the past. So uh, well, we posted a few of them, but definitely check out at least the last couple because this wraps it up. This wraps up Ski Month. We've got no more. Nothing more to pull out of the bag so far this year, but next week we will have another bag of sorts, and that is going to be a mail bag. So if you've got questions, definitely fire them our way. I will try to remember that we have a mail bag this time and not answer the question on Twitter uh, and actually put it in the hopper and actually answer it on next week's show. Uh, also, another announcement in case you did not see the article on Enters Nation, there are more podcasts coming there will be more podcasts added to this feed. So if you have things that you want to listen to, specific types of podcasts, maybe post-game show or uh, more of a daily podcast, make sure to let me and Kyle Posey know in the Niners Nation comment. So thanks for tuning in. You can always follow me at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at PFF underscore David. Remember to send us your questions for next week's mailbag. And as always, go Niners. Go Niners.